Okay. How's everybody doing today? We are we are back at it. It is uh it's wonderful uh to have a a podcast in this uh the shell of a, a studio we got right now. Finally, for the first time in a long time, got somebody right next to me. Jenny, wifey, how you doing? Good. Good. Hi. Good. <laughs> <laughs> like we haven't been sitting here, you know, for the past uh you know sixty days of this quarantine, but. Today we have a um, we have a special guest. Now here here being wild, we like to um, we like to touch on every single topic. You know, uh, interview anyone from you know <coughs> nurses, athletes, uh, construction workers, police, firemen, teachers. You know, I'd like to touch on uh, everything when when it comes to uh, the day to day operations of this world. But day to day operations haven't really been the same. So it's allowed a, a lot of opportunity for me to reach out and talk to a lot of different people, which I really really wouldn't have the opportunity to. Um, today we're talking about a topic that's pretty dear to my heart is, uh, women's health. I, of course, I have, I have a mother, I have a, I have a daughter on the way. I have a, a sister, cousins, uh, like I said, uh, Jenny, my wife is sitting right here next to me. Um, women's health is uh, very important. Um, a knowledge, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm, I'm not going to c- come myself completely ignorant, but there's a lot that I just don't know. And maybe from this podcast that, um, I could be educated. Maybe, I don't know, one day I can, uh, just... Help someone out or who knows, maybe save a life. You know, you never know what this information may uh, divulge. But without further ado, we uh, we have a guest here. Um, we'll go into how we met here shortly. But um, uh, Shirley Samuels, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks <laughs> for having me. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, it's funny how uh, we met. So I've been trying to build up the podcast a little bit more. So there's a few uh, Facebook groups that I've, uh, I've hopped into. And uh, I believe it's uh, Promote Your Podcast. One uh, we met through, so I just I was looking for just somebody in the uh, the medical field. That's uh well, not my parents. My, my father's a respiratory therapist, my, and my mom's uh, my nurse. Uh, I've had my father here multiple times, but just branching out, uh, I was looking for somebody you know in the medical field to talk to. And Shirley uh, commented on my was the only comment on my post, which is fine. You know, all it takes is one. You know, <laughs> one one person could change the world. So I was I, we talked offline. Uh, we've been going back and forth for about, I don't know, about two weeks now, it seems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I thank you very much for uh, hopping on this podcast with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. I, I am, you know, definitely open to kind of sharing as much information as I can. So that's why I kind of hopped in your comments like, hey, I'm a healthcare professional. What's up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we definitely, uh, definitely appreciate. It. It's it's good for the uh for the listeners too to have a uh, just a wide range of uh just things that uh we do here in a a different palette for uh for people to uh to eat off on. Um, yeah. let me uh let, let's start off with this. Uh, let's start off with your uh your background and uh how you uh how you became a uh, uh OBGYN. We just want to make sure yeah. I'm correct on that. Okay, good, good, yes, good, good. Yes. All right. I am so <laughs> I am a board certified OBGYN. So that means that I did, you know, the whole gamble, the four years of high school, four years of college, four years of med school, four years of residency, a lot of schooling and training, and then took all the many tests that it takes to become board certified. Um, I wanted to become an OBGYN shortly after um, my mom experienced the pregnancy loss. I was really young. Um, I can't remember exactly what trimester she was in, but I know that the baby had a name and we knew the gender. So she was far enough along that it made an impact on me. And I was um, I was only five years old um, at the time. Mm-hmm. But um, I just remember her um, kind of sitting me down and trying to explain to me how um, my sibling hadn't been born yet, but had died. And I was one of those types of children that you couldn't just tell me things. I needed I needed questions answered. So it was always like, but why? Okay, how do you know? What proof do you have? Like, I was that kind of five-year-old, uh-huh. which is a little scary because my daughter is five now and she's that way. And it's hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard parenting that kind of a child. Um, but I that was just a really defining moment for me because um, she couldn't give me answers of course, that she didn't have. And that just always stuck with me. And there are many um, moments that kind of defined me and helped me along the way and helped me determine what I wanted to do. But I remember that being one of the first ones. I remember asking her specifically, um, well, who takes care of, you know, 
women who are pregnant, mommies who are pregnant. Mm -hmm. And she told me, um, obstetrician gynecologist. And I couldn't pronounce it then, but I, I decided in that moment that's what I wanted to do. Oh, don't worry. I still can't pronounce it now. So. <laughs> Huh. But that's, but um, I, yeah, go on, please. You know, I literally went through high school, through college, through med school, through, you know, all of that with the goal of becoming an OBGYN. Okay. That's, uh, mm -hmm. that's, that's amazing that, first of all, sorry for uh, that traumatic experience that from, from weight from back then. Um, but it's amazing that, that right there, that you turned something that was extreme negative into obviously positive for your life, you know, you know. You know, helping different uh, different uh, women out in their their struggles from day to day or their health issues, and you know, helping make just making people feel better all around. You know, you know, uh, women are I mean, everything. Things that um, affect you at five can really like you know stay with you throughout your entire life, and I'm I'm definitely proof of that. So, um, but yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where that came from. <laughs> that's amazing. You know, you say things that affect you at five can stay with you for life. So. I, we have we have a a five year old and a, a six year old right now too, um, and with everything with uh, going on with with COVID nineteen, I always wonder like, you know, how's that going to long term affect them? You know, pretty oh, much, yeah. yeah, not really being able to play with you know other other kids, not going to school, school canceled. Of course, here in Maryland, as you see the flag behind me, mm -hmm. uh, behind Jen, yeah, school canceled in Maryland for us a year, like it is in many many states across the nation. Yeah, um, what are your thoughts on uh COVID nineteen? How's that affected your practice? Yeah, I mean, it has clearly affected everyone in some way. Um, with my practice, it definitely has changed a lot as far as how we practice medicine, how I practice obstetrics and gynecology. And Jenny, I'm sure you've noticed with your prenatal visits and stuff, things are changed, things are different. You're not allowed to have as many people as you typically could have and trying to explain that to the patients and why we're doing that. That's a day-to-day -day, um, challenge, trying to explain um, to patients, you know, you may not be able to have all of the support people you, you, you typically would in your delivery and what that means. Why do I need to check your temperature every time you walk through the door? I mean, there's just a lot. Um, and it has, it has definitely changed medicine in so many ways, um, mostly because we don't know a lot about it yet. So um, we, we don't know how to fix it yet. We don't know how it's going to affect um, pregnant women or their babies if they, if they you know, catch the virus while they're pregnant and then deliver. What does that mean for that child when that child is five? I don't know. And so not being ex able to explain that to the patient is very hard, you know, because patients come to you um, expecting answers and expecting you and to be able to provide that with your medical expertise. And right now there's just a lot that we can't provide. And that's been one of the hardest things for me. Um, aside from that, just being a person, cause I'm, yeah. I'm outside of medicine, I'm going through this pandemic like with everyone else. Um, you know, it's definitely hard. I, I told you guys, my, my daughter is five and she asks a lot of questions. Um, just like I did when I was her age and, you know, she knows I'm a healthcare worker. She knows what I do for a living, and she's scared for me to go to work. And um, and I have to, you know, deal with that and, and and reassure her that I'm doing my best to stay vigilant to protect her, protect myself, protect her brother. So it, it's a lot. It's definitely a lot. It's definitely some very uh, unprecedented times. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, it is. Like, it's amazing. I, I'm home pretty much every single day. Um, Jenny, she works every other day, so it's uh, it's definitely something. Um, you 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 run your own practice. You have your um, uh, your own uh, your own office. So I um joined a practice that okay. was already established. So I joined the practice five years ago, straight out of residency, and I've been there ever since. Um, but the practice was um, started maybe eleven years prior to when I got there. Um, so it's well established in the community, um, which was nice. I've thought about my own practice in the past, um, mm. but priorities just changed for me. You know, like I have kids now, and I don't know that I necessarily want to reinvent the wheel and start from start from the bottom and try to work my way up. So now I'm kind of like, all right, let me see about becoming a partner in an established practice. That's kind of where I'm at now. Okay. You think you ever start your own practice one day? I, it, that was always the, the goal going into med school and stuff like that. But 
now that I see what it takes to run one and, um, you know, it's a lot. And I think just kind of, I kind of want to just be a part of one that's established already. I don't really want to reinvent the process and start all the way from no patience and having to build that because mm-hmm. I have other endeavors. I have other things I want to do and, um, and I have a family, so I'm not really, I'm not really wanting to kind of, you know, put that on hold for a little while while I try to build up a practice, if that makes sense. No, it makes, hey, you ain't explain anything to us. We just, <laughs> <laughs> no, understand, understand that right there. So, um, great background story. That's 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 very amazing and powerful right there. You should um that could, that could that sounds like a, a book, you know, somebody could somebody <laughs> could write one day or a movie. Speaking of books and movies, um your brother uh, runs a runs a podcast too as well. Would you uh before we actually get into the rest of this, would you want mind talking about that? I checked this first is episode episode one today and it was uh, amazing. But I'll let you take the rest from there, please. Sure, absolutely. So that's actually how I came to be in the group where we met. Um, I hopped into a bunch of these kind of promote your podcast groups to try to help him promote his podcast, which he's doing on in other um, social media um, platforms. And um, so anyway, he has written uh, an audio drama. So it's kind of um, more like TV for your ears and less like a traditional podcast. So he casted actors, he wrote the script, he produced it. Um, his goal is to ultimately um, write for TV, um, but you you kind of can't just wake up one day and decide to do that. You kind of have to prove that you have you know, some talent, you have to prove that you can build a following. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he decided to try to do that via podcast. So it's really, really dope. I'm super proud of it. It's Visionaries Audio Drama. Um, I think he's going to um, do really well with it. So yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the thing right that. So baby, this morning you saw me uh, with my headphones. Normal well, day, me, headphones <laughs> on. But <laughs> I put it on, I, I played it. So I make sure it was fresh in my mind before we did this podcast too as well. And I was listening to, I was like, the, the, the audio, the crisp, First of all, the the production of it is out of this world. It's amazing. Like it's a complete audio book. Um, hired actors, um, uh, s- samples of a uh, like, a, like when I think this is a line. Let's say a, a horse trotted, then you hear like a horse trotting in the background too as well. Like it's it's great. It's great production. Um, Game of Thrones uh, style too as well. As far as that, yeah. that's a, that's the first. That's a vibe I got. Um, what it's is, definitely yeah. something for fantasy lovers, sci-fi lovers, Game of Thrones ish, like you said. Yep, yep, yep. Where can uh, where can we find him at on um, on uh, on uh, these streaming apps for our podcast? Yeah, so he is on um, Spotify. He's on Apple Podcasts. He's on Google Play. Um, at at Vision, Visionaries Audio Drama um, on Instagram. The name of it is Visionaries Audio Drama, um, and you will know it by the red eye. The red eye. I got a, uh, I got, I got, I made to take a red eye to interview this man in person. This thing is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that thing, that, that thing was, uh, I'm, I'm very impressed and, uh, I'll be following that one, uh, for sure. Definitely. And, uh, definitely, uh, got talked about getting him on the podcast as well. Yeah. yeah that's a, that's a, that's a future plug for everybody out there. Okay. <laughs> All right, Shirley, you, uh, you ready to do this? Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> so me and, uh, me and Jenny, we came with this, a, a list of, uh, topics that as far as women's health, we want to talk to you about now. Some things I'm not going to introduce. Just me being <laughs> me being the man. But that's probably. Yeah. That's probably. <laughs> I told him I said, please don't embarrass me today. Don't. <laughs> yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, I can't do this all alone. I can't yeah, do. This, can't. I can't. I can't. God's plan. But uh, yeah, Jenny. Uh, Jenny, please. Uh, I'm gonna sit back. I'm gonna listen and learn, and I'll uh, ask a few questions just to make sure I educate myself too as well. So please, floor okay. is yours, baby. Um, what would you say about um, conducting regular checkups for women to go? How often should you go in the process? Sure. So um, definitely regular checkups are um, essential to just maintaining your health. And that's for a man or a woman. Um, now, what that looks like for a man is very different than what it looks like for a woman. Um, we are recommending once um, you turn about 15 or 16, that's the that's a good time for you to initiate care with a GYN. So that, um, 
at those visits, at that age, you're not going to be doing all the things that you would necessarily do with someone who's 25 or 30 or 40, right? Um, different ages call for different things. But that's a good time to initiate care so that way you can kind of build a rapport with the patient so that when those uncomfortable questions have to start being asked, those uncomfortable exams start to have to be done, um, it's not with someone who's a total stranger to you. Right. So if you imagine your pap smear will start at age 21. If you have started seeing your gynecologist once a year since you were 16, then by 21, it's not going to be super weird and super awkward and like just just weird. Um, mm -hmm. So I, that's what I recommend is to start at around the age of 15 to 16. And we're going to be talking about um, essentially once a year going to see the physician um, between the ages of 15 to 20, 21. It's really just um, making sure that the patient understands um, what it means to have safe relationships, um, how to counsel about birth control, introducing them to um, uh, taking control of their sexual health and things like that. And then starting at 20, you typically will start a breast exam. 21, you'll start doing the pap smears. And then the further along you get, you know, different things start having to happen. So by 40, we're talking about a mammogram once a year. 45 to 50, we sprinkle a colonoscopy in there. So, mm -hmm. you know, the thing about GYN is um, you can you can really care for someone basically for their entire life. And so that it's it's a comfortable process. Um, and that's kind of how I like to tailor my care. How would you when, say, like military folks, they have to jump from base to base or you're moving around, how would you tell them or give what advice would you give them if they have to start seeing somebody new say you know every other time they go yeah yeah sure i um have some patients that are like that um whether it's they're in the military or um they're in school and they go to school they go to college or something far away from where my practice is um and i usually say you know have your, your doctor in your hometown or, you know, wherever is your home base that you, um, you know, you can go to, you can refer to, certainly don't skip out for years on getting your exam um, if you're not going to be able to see that that um, person that you trust and, and that you've built a rapport with, um, just do your research. Um, just kind of ask questions, ask other people on base, ask other people at school who they've seen, who they trust, um, and try to make an informed, you know, decision on who you want to have, um, have care for you when you're not at home. But I would still recommend maintaining that relationship with that doctor that you know and that you kind of have been with for years um, so that when you are back back at your home base, you can always refer back to them. Okay. Um, next question, birth control. Mm -hmm. I know that's a good birth topic. control is a huge topic. <laughs> <laughs> what's, about um, what's the best? What's the worst? I, I mean, me personally, I've had, I've done the pill mm -hmm. and I've had the IUD. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So birth control, you know, first of all, I will say I believe in birth control. Birth control is great. In this day and age, I feel like there really should not be, um, any, uh, oops, pregnancies if you can get reliable access to birth control. Um, but with that being said, they are all very different. Um, so I know you mentioned a couple types. You've mentioned the pill. You mentioned the IUD. There's also shots. There's rings. There's there's implants that you can put in the arm. There's a whole bunch of different things that you can do. And they all are um, excellent birth controls. It really just depends on the person. Right. So what's the best option for you may not be the best option for me. Right. So for instance, for myself, I can't take a pill every day. I don't have time for that. Mm. I'm going to forget. <laughs> if you're going to forget, <laughs> if you're gonna forget to take your pill, you could go right to the gas station and pick up a pack of Skittles and use that for birth control. It's not going to work. You're going to get pregnant. So it really has to tailor to your lifestyle. You have to, um, you have to, first of all, be honest with yourself. Like, I know I can't take a pill. Um, you have to know what you're comfortable with. Um, some patients are not comfortable with the idea of something being in their uterus. Well, you're more likely to come back in and ask that it's taken out within the first year um, if you're uncomfortable with the idea of something being there. And if that's the case, you shouldn't get that because that's meant to stay in for three to 10 years. 
right? Um, some people are not comfortable with injections. They're terrified of needles. Okay. You probably don't want to do the devil shot. That's also so a all of the forms too, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Make sure so you go within that time period. Exactly. You have to remember to go in and get it. So you, you really have to um, tailor your birth control to your life. And what's good for one person is not necessarily good for another. I recommend talking to your doctor, figuring it out. I have patients come into my office all the time and say, chief complaint, birth control. And I'm like, all right, I know that's going to be someone I'm going to go in there, spend some time, explain all the different types, all the benefits, risks, alternatives, and help you make a choice. Um, but ultimately, it's a choice that has to fit your lifestyle. Okay. Makes sense. Because <laughs> I'm not good with remembering to take a pill. So the IUD worked best for me. I couldn't, right. I couldn't imagine doing any of that right there. <laughs> I have a really funny story. So I was in college. And uh, my mom is a nurse. Uh -huh. And so I'm doing um, depot shot for, for birth control because I do not want to get pregnant while I'm in college, of course. So I come home from college one day. Yep, yep, um, yep. Well, I went to college locally, but I, I was home with my birth control medicine and I was due to take my injection. I didn't want to miss my injection. Um, but I didn't want to ask my mom to give me a shot because she kind of didn't know I was on birth control. And, you know, I didn't want to have that conversation. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm going to just give it to myself. I'm going to give myself my shot. And oh. I jammed that depo shot into my thigh. And I saw that needle sticking out of my thigh. I was like 19, 20 years old. <laughs> and I passed out. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that's that, that's that Pulp Fiction. Yes. And my mom comes in there. So I have this needle in my leg. And she's like, oh, my God, what drugs are you doing? And I'm like, no, oh no, no, it's birth control. And she's like, oh, okay, that's cool. Why didn't you just ask me? You know, and I was like, that was a good way to let her know that I was sexually active because she thought I was doing drugs. And then when she realized I wasn't, it was much better. You know, that's amazing. She felt a lot better. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> you, when you think like something's the worst case scenario and you get like something less than that, you're like, it's almost like a sense of relief. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. She was like, oh. All right, you're just having sex? Okay, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, it's not heroin, so, yeah. That's... Right. <laughs> oh, God. All right, let's go ahead, baby. Oh, you got sorry. it. You good, um... you good? <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I may try that uh, Try that out, like uh, present the worst-case scenario. Then Actually, I do it from time to time. Like, I'm like, yeah, baby, I spent about 200 what? No, nah, nah, I spent like 100, 160. Oh, okay. Yeah. Exactly. He does that all, all the time, and it drives me crazy. Um, sex on periods. Yeah. Sex on periods is okay. Um, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of um, different kind of ideas and myths and things you should, should not do. Sex during your cycle is okay. It is completely uh, a matter of what you're comfortable with. Some people are like, absolutely not. Once I see one spot of blood, it's closed down. And other people do not feel that way. Um, and it's all a matter of how you're comfortable, what you're comfortable with. Um, something that can make it a little bit less uncomfortable would be um, using a menstrual cup. Like rather than a tampon or pad, using um, the Diva Cup or the Soft Disc or something like that, those uh, are cups that actually um, collect the menstrual blood instead of it pooling in a pad or on a tampon. Um, and the, uh, many of those can be uh, worn during intercourse. And so you have less of you know a mess and therefore less discomfort from that sense. Um, but there, there isn't a reason why you can't have intercourse while you're on your period. It is hard being a woman. <laughs> <laughs> now you know the struggle. I see like rubbing your eye over there like, whoa. Yeah, that's, <laughs> this is, I'm like, I just, I, my voice got deeper and I got a little bit taller. That was, that was pretty much it for me. <laughs> Let me, so uh, the important things about, you know, women's health. These are, these are all the things that encompass that. Hey, I'm here for it. Let me, uh, let me ask you this. Um, you, uh, you deliver babies too, as well. I do. Yeah. Can, can you talk to us about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is definitely one of the most gratifying parts of my job. Like you, there's no other part of medicine where you kind of walk into a room and there's one patient there. And then by the time you walk out, there are two patients there. So, um, 
it's amazing. It's amazing to be a part of that um, special time in, you know, a, a parent's life, a mother's life, and, you know, dad's life. Um, it is also, uh, you know, not for the faint of heart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. is a bloody procedure. There's amniotic fluid. There's feces. There's urine. There's crying. From everybody, I mean, it's it's definitely a um, it, it's a it's a beautiful but very different experience. Um, and I mean, I love it. I love it. Like I said, that's one of the um, that's one of the most satisfying things that I do. How many uh, babies do you think you delivered? Ooh, I don't know. I you know, in residency, we have to keep count to graduate. So mm -hmm. before graduating, I forget the number now. I want to say it's around two hundred or three hundred. Well, well, hold a second. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> How many yeah. did you say two hundred or three hundred babies? Oh my yeah. god. I yes, and one. that's that's oh. that's in order to be able to say I'm competent and I'm able to you know move forward and graduate. Um, but you kind of stop keeping count after residency, right? Cause you're not, you're not needing it for that as a competency, like to make sure that you can move on. So I, I don't know, honestly, I honestly don't know. When, when Jenny gave birth to, uh, our oldest, I was like, this is, <laughs> this is, this whole scene is something right here. Yeah. Everything. It's, it's 200 insane. to 300. Oh my God. I couldn't, <laughs> we're about to go through three and I'm sitting here like, I'm already just freaking out just thinking about it from time to time. <laughs> just the birth part, but God, 200, 300, that is... You're not the one pushing it out. No, nah, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> but I acknowledge that. I am not. No, that <laughs> is... the easy part. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it... Um, I got a question for you. Um, can it be hard sometimes to tell if uh, the baby has hair? Um, our oldest, or our youngest, they said uh, he's completely bald. Then he popped out and he's had a a full head of hair. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So first of all, you got to imagine um, you're seeing the top of the baby's head through a tiny little opening. Um, and so if the hair is kind of slicked back, which a lot of times it can be because the amniotic fluid is in there and just kind of, you know, there's vernix on the baby, that white cheesy stuff that comes out on the baby, that's on there. So sometimes it'll give the illusion that that's like just scalp. Mm -hmm. um, so and that's probably what it was. And then when baby popped out, like, oh, it's like, never mind. Baby's got hair. Okay, I was like, yeah, he's like, he's really bald. I was like, oh man. <laughs> then I, I, I saw, I saw our youngest. I was like, oh, that boy got hair. He got nothing but hair. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, that's uh, that's that's crazy right there. Um, so you watch the births. You're one of the dads who like. I, I would never watch it again. He watched the first one. Yeah. The, gotcha. Go gotcha. The second one. The second one. It was Monday Night Football <laughs> was on, and I was watching that while I was holding her leg. I could not. <laughs> I could not. They I were could getting not. very mad at him. I, the thing is that I was because our our two our two our two kids are fifteen months apart. Yeah. So six months, and then we're right back seeing the uh, the same doctor again. That was still fresh. That yeah. was still very fresh in your mind. That's what it was. He's yeah. like, I'm good, and it was quicker. It would only push for ten minutes. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's excellent. Yeah, it was crazy because the day she was um, she was like, I'm having contractions. So I was like. I mean, we probably should take you to the take you to the hospital. They're literally like nine hours later, he popped out. Yeah, yeah, nice. so, yeah. He That's was, the way you wanted to go. Yeah. Um, can you talk to us about uh the centimeters uh, uh dilation? Sure, sure. So for um a full term baby to pass through, um, mom will have to be ten centimeters dilated. The cervix would need to be ten centimeters dilated. So you typically, you know, you start out with a closed cervix in your second trimester. Towards the end of your third trimester, even though you're not um, in a ton of pain, even though you don't necessarily have to go to the hospital, most women, especially if it's not your first one, you'll start to slowly dilate. So you know, by the time you're actually going into the hospital or by the time you're starting to get examined by your doctor, you're already one to two centimeters dilated. Um, but if you imagine, we use our fingers to kind of measure the dilation. Mm -hmm. um, and 10 centimeters is about that big. That's how, uh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody out there, just put your hands together, like make a circle. Just do that make right there. Make a circle, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that is how big the cervix is. 
cervix has to dilate. Um, and once that happens, then the real work starts. Getting to 10 centimeters is not even the real work. The real work is pushing out that head and then those shoulders. Mother's Day is coming up. It is. Treat that woman. Treat that woman good. Well, because, do. Oh, happy uh, Mother's Day to you too, as well. Yes, happy Mother's <laughs> Day. Yes, thank you, thank you. But uh, pushing out those babies is no small task. <laughs> what is the uh, the heaviest baby you ever you ever delivered? Do you have any idea? Yeah, uh, the largest <laughs> baby I delivered was thirteen pounds. Oh my God! Now, she delivered via C section. Okay. Um, for most women, you know, we're doing ultrasounds throughout the pregnancy and if we start to see like this baby's kind of coming out like a three-month-old we start talking about hey do you want to try to have a um, vaginal birth do you want to try that c-section you know we, we start to kind of give patients options because having a baby that large come through the vagina is is difficult um, and can have a lot of complications. Um, one of the worst ones would be what's called the shoulder dystocia. The head comes out but the shoulders don't follow. And when that happens, the head is just kind of sitting in the vagina. Um, the, the head is out of the vagina and the neck is just kind of being, you know, compressed. Um, and you have a small window of time to get that baby out before the baby is not getting any oxygen. So you're gonna have the subsequent brain damage and things like that and ultimately death. Um, and one, the one, one of the ones that sticks out to me that I delivered like that, that baby was, 10 pounds um, or right under 10 pounds, maybe nine pounds, 14 ounces. Um, and I had to um, to break the arm to release the baby. Um, wow. And that will heal, you know, that will heal, but no one wants to do that if they if they don't have to. That That's one of the complications that makes the OBGYN like lose sleep and a few gray hairs pop up and yeah. you start to reevaluate things like, Man, maybe I really should have tried that singing career. That, <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, but we always come back yeah. because we love what we do. But that is one of the complications. There are very few things that you know that scare us, but that's one of the ones is the shoulder dystocia. Yeah, I mean, you do what you have to do to save the baby's life. You know, like you said, they'll recover, but that's uh, it's still a tough pill to swallow going through that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's that's tough for everyone. That's tough for dad to stand there and see. That's tough for mom to be going through that. That's tough for the doctor trying to figure out, okay, what maneuver can I do now? Because I need to get this baby out. You know, you have, like I said, a small window of time before, you know, the baby really starts to suffer and you really want to get the baby out before that happens. Gotcha. Um, so nowadays, though, we are delivering most of our very larger babies by C-section. So we're not having um, we're not having many of that those issues. Okay. Good. 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 Yeah. <laughs> any any baby? Uh, any questions you have? About, I was gonna say questions, <laughs> but like with our oldest, um, I we I pushed for three hours, mm-hmm. and they're like, the OB was like, we might have to push them back up the birth canal, and do an emergency C section. I was like, um, I'm yeah. just gonna keep uh, pushing. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I yeah. Definitely. You know. Um. So some of the things that we have as our tools, I like to think of myself as having like a toolbox. And in my toolbox, I have different things that help me determine how the baby is doing during that delivery process. Because that delivery process is not only stressful for mom, it's stressful for baby too. So different tools that I have um, is how's mom doing? Um, is she, uh, resting comfortably with her epidural and then all of a sudden she's screaming out in pain that lets me know something might be going wrong. How the heart monitor looks on the, um, how the heart, the baby's heart rate looks on the heart monitor, how the contraction pattern, um, also, um, the, uh, the labor curve, how long did it take for her to get from four centimeters to 10? Because our textbooks say you should be dilating about a centimeter an hour or so. So if it takes you a very long time to dilate, is there a reason why? Is the baby caught up on something? Is, is there a fibroid that was undiagnosed that's preventing the baby from coming down? Things like that. Um, also, um, another tool is the pushing, the second stage of labor. Um, with your first baby, it's not unusual to have to push for several hours right. because you're 
cervix and your uterus are very naive to this process. They've never gone through this before. But certainly with your second or your third, if you were pushing for three hours, you know, that would be concerning. Like, okay, that's just kind of like a little a little flag, like, hey, just make sure that everything's okay. Oh. Very rarely we have to push a baby back up in there and, and take them out um, via C-section. Um, but it does happen. Now that makes sense. That's why uh, our old doctor's like, you've already uh, built the pathway. It should be a lot easier. Now yeah. that makes sense. That Six years later, <laughs> it finally clicked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the second one, it's like, you know, so I have two children myself, and with my second, they're um three years, two two years apart, two and a half years apart. And um with my second, you know, I went into labor, went into the hospital, called up my partner, who is actually one of my good friends, and I'm like, hey, I'm here, come on over, come help me have this baby. So, um, you know, I dilated very quickly. Again, it's the second baby, and I'm pushing and I'm pushing and I'm pushing, and I just knew I was gonna push for maybe a few minutes, like you said. Shouldn't be long. I've done this already. But um, it didn't happen right away. So I'm asking her, like, what's going on? What, what's, this is taking too long. This is not my first baby, you know? Um, and, of course, laying there and having knowledge of stuff, it, I, I'm kind of stressing myself out. And she's like, you're fine. Just keep pushing. You're fine. So finally, after the baby comes out, she's like, okay. So um, the baby came out instead of facing the floor. You know, usually they should be facing completely face down. My son was sunny side up. He was facing the ceiling. And so he came out just kind of looking around at everybody. It was like the weirdest thing, like literally birthing an alien. But, um, <laughs> but that's why it was taking so long for me to push. So different positions that the baby is in will also affect um, the, the labor process and the delivery process. Um, because if they're in a certain position, it makes the diameter of the head a little bit longer. Um, and so it's a little bit harder to push out, but I remember telling my, my partner, like, why is this baby not coming out? Tell me what's wrong. And she's like, just keep pushing. You're fine. You're fine. And I'm like, nope, I've been pushing for an hour. This is, I, this is my second baby. This baby should have just flew, flown on out. What's going on? Yeah. But, yeah. um, definitely with each subsequent birth, it should take less time. Um, uh, I guess uh, it was, it's one last thing I want to mention here. Um, uh, an umbilical cord getting tied up mm -hmm. too as well. Yeah. Is that, is that common? That's very common. It's very, very common. And most times we don't know that that's happened until after the baby comes out and we are like, oh, there's a tight umbilical cord and we reduce it. Uh, but sometimes um, like there'll be drops in the heart rate during the labor, especially while mom's pushing. And we'll be kind of scratching our heads and wondering why. And then when the baby comes out, we're like, oh, that's why. Most times it's not going to cause any issue with the baby. Most babies are going to be able to deliver through that just fine. Okay. All right. Yeah, I have not seen an issue where, you know, um, the baby was you know, harmed by that. It's scary when the mom's pushing and the heart rate's dropping and you're, all right, come on, let's get this baby out with this next push. But most times the babies do just fine. Okay. Yeah, that happened to our, our oldest. I was like, like, oh, Yeah, there's a, a huge knot like this big. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you'll have knots in there um, and it'll be like a true knot. It'll look like a sailor tied, tied it type thing. Like, you know, it's, it's crazy and you just wonder... What were you doing in there? Like, were you playing stroke <laughs> with this thing? Like, what, how did this happen? Sometimes it'll be around the baby's neck as well. Um, and again, most times, though, that it's not going to have any untoward outcome on the baby. Oh, good to know. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, that is uh, my line of question for that right there. Please, baby, continue with the rest of that. I am not going to ask uh, any further questions we have coming up. No, I did not. <laughs> go on, go on. You good. Go on, do your thing. Um, Yeast infections and bacterial infections. Yeah, yeah. That is definitely a common issue that comes up in women's health. Um, so how I tend to explain it to my patients is um, if you imagine that uh, you have bacteria and yeast in multiple parts of your body, in your mouth, in your nose, in your ears, uh, in your anus, uh, and in your vagina. But in the vagina, there needs to be um, a very uh, precise balance between that bacteria and that yeast. And when anything throws off that balance, it'll either allow the yeast to grow out of control, that'll cause a yeast infection, 
or it'll cause the bacteria to grow out of control and that'll cause bacterial vaginosis. So things that can cause that, um, antibiotics, let's say you're taking antibiotics for strep throat, that will kill off the strep throat bacteria, but then it'll also kill off your good bacteria that you want in the vagina. And that will then cause uh, a yeast infection. Or let's say you do, um, some people do douching or things like that. Um, that can cause um, a overgrowth of the bacteria and then you have a bacterial vaginosis. So the main thing with that, um, with preventing those issues is gonna be preventative measures. Trying um, not to um, do douching, tons of bubble baths or um, you know those really nice scented things that come from Bed Bath & Beyond. Those are not good for the vagina. Um, <laughs> and they throw off the balance, okay? <laughs> Just doing a mild soap um, in that area. And of course, using your nice scented stuff other, you know, in other areas, but just a mild soap in the vagina. Um, doing a probiotic can help when you're, especially when you're taking antibiotics, um, just to try to prevent um, a yeast infection. And then of course, if you have symptoms um, like a vaginal odor, discharge, or anything like that, talking to your GYN and, and potentially getting a prescription if you need it. Um, low libido. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's a good topic. So libido, um, libido for women is something that is very, very complex. Um, we are definitely, um, I think that there's a lot of, uh, physical and emotional aspects that go to libido. So a lot of times when a woman comes to me um, looking for treatment for low libido, um, I, I, ha I tend to have to address other things that might be going on before we even start to talk about potentially using medication. So things like, are you happy in your marriage? Are you happy in your relationship? Um, things like, um, is there anything going on outside of your household that caused stress? Those are all things that for women uh, can affect their libido, whereas for men, maybe not so much. So um, <laughs> those, are all, those are all things that we tend to have to kind of talk through and make sure um, that there actually isn't um, some kind of um, uh, an outside stressor that's causing low libido. Now, once I rule all those things out, there's nothing um, anatomically wrong. There's nothing physically wrong. Um, person is happy with their partner. They they want to have sex. Um, they just, um, you know, the desire is not there as often as they'd like, or um, they feel like their partner always has to initiate. They don't really, they can go fine either way. It's, you know, if I have a lot of patients that, if he initiates, then great. But if he doesn't, I'm fine too. Um, and um, in, in those situations, I start to talk about potentially doing medication. Um, the times are kind of catching up now where we're having some medications available for women for a long time. That wasn't the case. You know, you had your Viagra's and your Cialis and all of that, and that was it. And there was nothing for women. Um, now we have very few, but we, we are catching up and we do have some that we can, you know, we can offer. Um, so the main thing with that is, uh, your doctor is going to ask you a bunch of questions and it's not that they're trying to be, um, nosy. It's not that they're trying to pry. It's not that they're trying to say you have another reason for your low libido, but it's really important to make sure that you address all those things first, because if you don't, the medication is not going to work. Um, but, um, I am really, really happy. Like I said, that the times are catching up, that we have something to offer women now. Um, because even just, you know, five, 10 years ago, the, the options were very, very slim. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here learning. <laughs> that is, uh, I got, I got, I got nothing for that. I'll just I'll take that knowledge and, uh, I'll, I'll pass as, as need be. But that's um that's good though you know you know with um as far as uh you know of course like you said Viagra and Cialis been out there for many years and women had nothing you know that's mm -hmm. yeah you know, it's just society in general it is the the history of you know the genders but it's good that times are finally catching up so yeah thank God all right yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's not all about the men yeah yep yep right. yep right <laughs> I mean sometimes the woman needs a little boost too and we need to be able to provide that. Hey, right. ain't nothing wrong with that. 
Um, normal PMS versus unhinged. Okay. Yeah. So, um, the menstrual cycle, you know, that the, the several days that you have, um, that bleeding period, that is just one part of your menstrual cycle. Your menstrual cycle is a very complex, um, uh, phenomenon of hormones that, um, you know, have different peaks and different drops. Um, and so you can have some, uh, you know, emotional, um, uh, you know, experiences during those times. And that we consider normal. Um, ha you know, some women will crave certain things. Some women will be a little bit more moody, be a little bit more teary at certain times of their cycle. And usually you'll notice that that'll actually be before you actually have the period. That'll be when you're around the ovulating time. Um, heightened um, desire for sex. Um, that definitely is something that is normal um, during those the um, you know the the cycle the menstrual cycle or the um, the ovulation period when you're talking about unhinged or I'm guessing you're talking about like um, like a dysphoric disorder or something like that like a PMDD that is when you have um, extreme symptoms um, extreme mood liability um, some patients uh, feel like they uh, they come in and they'll say, "Hey, I just I just feel like I'm crazy. I don't feel like I'm myself," and that and they're not. They're absolutely not crazy. It's definitely um, hormonal mediated, hormone mediated. But those patients um, may need something to help with that. Um, and we do have medications that'll help with that. There are specific um, birth controls that we have that um, help that are also FDA approved to treat that. Um, and so. If you feel like you are unhinged, if you feel like it's more than just your normal, you know, just a little bit of moodiness here and a little bit of agitation there, if it's more than that, it's definitely worth it to talk to your doctor about it because there can be something that you can take um, to help with that. Um, I find that a lot of women think that you just have to suffer through it and then it'll go away, but then next month it comes back. Um, and if that's the case, that's not a really... Uh, that's not a really good existence, you know, to just kind of go through that every single month. Um, and if you imagine it's going to happen from the time you're 14 or 12 or whenever you have your first period, so you're 55 and you don't have them anymore. So that is a long time to spend, um, you know, just being, um, just feeling quote unquote unhinged, like you said. So if that's the case, I definitely urge people to talk to their doctor about that. Right. All right. <laughs> um, that goes on to the next topic, uh, menopause. Yeah, yeah. So menopause um, is uh, when you stop having your cycle for a full 12 months. And so um, that tends to happen at around age 52 in the United States. Um, can be a little bit earlier, can be a little bit later. Um, anytime after 40 is considered normal menopause. Um, but like I said, on average, it's around, it's in your early 50s in the United States. Um, 12 months without a cycle. Now, the reason why that happens is because your ovaries, um, the organ that pops out those eggs all those years, um, is no longer making um, the hormone estrogen in high amounts. And so you are no longer having a cycle. But that also comes with other things. That comes with um, hot flashes. Um, it can come with night sweats. It can come with mood swings, irritability, difficulty sleeping, difficulty with concentration, uh, vaginal dryness, sexual dysfunction. There's a whole lot that can go on with menopause. It's just like a different, uh, another stage of life that we enter that we have to kind of um, figure out and have to, to deal with. Luckily, there are a ton of medications that you can take, um, both um, hormonal, non-hormonal, natural um, remedies that are well studied that people can do. Um, so there, there is definitely symptom relief. My biggest thing with patients is, again, they think that this is just life. I just have to live like this. I'm now in my 50s and I'm just going to um, have hot flashes and I'm just going to have vaginal dryness. But that's not the case. You can get 
medication. You can get natural remedies. You can get advice um, to help um, remedy that because you, you do still have a whole lot of life left to live and you want to live that comfortably. Oh, I, I mean, I, I always knew it like me. I'm just, my, my hair's thinning a little bit up top. That's that's my, my concern right now. <laughs> that's your issue. So we have gone from periods to childbirth to uh, menopause to vaginal dryness. Yeah, we, we, we got it rough. We got yeah. it rough out here. <laughs> I'm just worried about if I'm going to have to use a big razor. I'm going to have to wear a hat the rest of my life. That's, 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 that's as far as my body's going through. That is... um. That is, it's so interesting, you know, just to hear how complex, uh, you know, like I said, a woman's, uh, woman's body is. Um, like, I, like I said, me and uh, me and Jim, we, have, we got a daughter due in August. So it's um, it's definitely something, some things I just want to know. And what things I want to, I, I want, uh, I definitely uh, want to see to expect. Um, when is, uh, when can be the earliest sign of a, of a period? In a yeah, so. On average, it's going to be between um, 10 to 13 years. Um, it can be as early as nine. Um, if they get their period at, um, you know, earlier than nine, then that's when we start to uh, want to make sure that they're not what, going through what we call um, precocious puberty or, you know, they make sure that they don't have um, any reason why their period starts early, for instance, um, uh, a tumor secreting estrogen that might cause you to have your period earlier because you have extra hormones present. So if you have, if your child has their period before the age of nine, their doctor might just do some tests just to make sure that there's nothing they need to be concerned about. But on average, it's going to be between 10 to 13. 10 to 13. Okay. As a, mm -hmm. um, as a man myself, uh, mm -hmm. what kind of advice can you, uh, give me? When uh, dealing with my uh, that do my daughter during that time, just leave her alone. <laughs> <laughs> leave her alone. <laughs> you know, um, we. You know, I, I think that our our um, loved ones, our male loved ones, they definitely have good intentions, uh -huh. and they, you know, they 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 want to help. Um, but sometimes we, you just space is what we need during that time. Okay. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. And definitely mom is going to be, um, mom is going to be a little bit, um, better as far as, you know, being able to help her walk through this because she's gone through it herself and just be prepared. Your daughter's going to be embarrassed. She's not going to want to talk to you about things when she gets to that age. She's going to be daddy's little girl when she's, you know, when she's first comes out, but when she gets to that age, she's, she's not going to want to be bothered with you because you don't know what she's going through mm -hmm. and it's okay. It is okay. <laughs> I'll um I'll take a couple steps back. Jenny, you got it from there. I'll uh I don't know, I'll be on the couch watching a game or something. Yeah, you are gonna you're gonna intervene when asked. You're gonna you're gonna step up when asked, but when when you're not asked, when the invitation is not put out there, you go on and do your dad thing. Okay. Uh <laughs> message received. Good. I can do that. <laughs> Well, it's like with having two boys, it's like I can only explain so much to them. So right. I'm like you right. need to talk to them about these things because I don't. There's certain things you're not gonna be able to explain because you just you haven't gone through that. Right. You don't know. Or I don't have those body parts. You don't have those parts. <laughs> I can explain to you how that works. Like I don't hey. know. Go talk to your daddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I tell him exactly what it is. Like you're doing this right here wrong. Uh, the toilet is right there. Stop aiming for the wall. Like. <laughs> Just things like that. I am not looking forward to that. My <laughs> son is two, and um, he'll be three in February, and I'm just wondering how long can I leave the diaper on without being judged by society? Because I'm not looking for pee in my flower pots and on my walls. I hear all types of horror stories, so maybe y'all could tell me what is... What do I need to do to make sure he doesn't pee in my flower pots and all over my walls? Well, that's not going to... Like today, my son... Our son, um, we live uh, right by a wooded area, so he's outside playing with a the football. Then he's went by a tree and just started peeing. <laughs> like he's just, he's just, <laughs> I, I looked at him. I'm sitting in cars pulling up the driveway. I'm, I'm looking at him like, Rick, what are you what are you doing over there? I'm like, he's over there peeing. <laughs> he's over there peeing. Then he just ran back over and just started playing again. I'm like, boy, get over here. I'm like, we have bathrooms inside. Like I I get, I get it. Like from time to time, especially when um we're out. 
and he really, really has to go or like nowhere where a bathroom's at. This is before yeah. before COVID. I'm like, all right, just we can pull over real quick and just have him pee in some in the parking lot by a, by a, a wood area, <laughs> and then from there, it's just in his mind, like, oh, tree pee. You just right. do it when I, I got you. Outside. When you gotta yeah. go, you gotta go. So your flower pots, they may be uh, they may be turning yellow. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good okay. uh, good good luck with that. Once they um, and it, it's just gonna happen. I've heard parents put um, like puppy pads, like around the toilet. For 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 humans. Yeah. For like around the toilet, so that if they pee, it doesn't get on the floor and. See, but that's my thing. I don't want to have to use a puppy pad. <laughs> my human child like why can't you pee in the toilet yeah it's it's it's, it's I don't or know, cheerios you can put cheerios <laughs> yeah, fruit, i heard about cheerios yep yep, yep fruit loops I yep. Try that. yeah we uh that. yeah our uh, our youngest one is definitely uh actually no they, they both suck about peeing in the toilet <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're both equally as bad like it's just like we're old enough now it's like all right you pee wipe it up i'm not i'm right. not wiping up your mind wipe up your piss anymore kid right i'm not cleaning up after you yeah yeah so you know with, with that it's just it just takes time with them they say uh what who's what is it girls are easier for potty training the boys oh easy i mean my daughter now granted um i had some family members who were like she is ready to potty train you need to just potty train her at like 18 months and i was just like nope because i want it oh, wow. to be easy yeah i'm gonna wait until she's ready my daughter was two years and four months old and she told me i want panties and when i tell you i potty trained her over a weekend she had one pee accident on Friday, one poop accident on Saturday, and she's never had an issue again. Never yeah. with the bed, nothing. <laughs> that sounds but amazing. <laughs> it's a little different with the girls, and that's why I'm scared because that that was my first child, so that's my only experience. Mm-hmm. So now when I hear people talking about peeing in the flower pots, I can't, I, I can't put that together because <laughs> I didn't experience that with my daughter. Right. <laughs> yeah, I think I then our youngest. You could tell the story. Uh, our youngest Jet, he uh he pooped in uh, our neighbor's front yard. Oh yeah, he did. <laughs> he, he said the dog. He he told me the dog told him to do it, and <laughs> the dog the was dog nowhere was around. The dog was like, okay, I can do that too. Yeah. I mean, honestly, with the girls, um, at least for me, I only have one girl. But the main thing for me was I waited till she was ready. She came to me and asked me. And before that, we had started, um, I got some potty training books off of Amazon, just five, six bucks. I was reading them to her at night, getting her interested in it. But I never, you know, I never asked her. She told me, she was like, mommy, I, I want to put on panties. I said, okay, but you know, you can't pee and poop in that. Right. And that was it. That is, uh, that's incredible. Yeah, not over here. <laughs> but at least, so you had your boys first. So hopefully this will be an easier process for you. It's the other way around for me. I had an easy process, and now I'm, like, staring down the barrel of this thing, and I, I don't want to do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm, um, these, these boys, hey, they suck at staring down the barrel as is. So we'll, uh, <laughs> well, it's all going, it's all going struggle. But, um, right. but Cheryl, thank you. Uh, I think we just ran through everything. Um. Uh, Jenny, do you have uh, no, you have any I personal don't. questions you want to ask? No, I I, I think I've asked all <laughs> the personal questions I could. Yeah, this what? is um uh, this has been an experience if I if I say the least. Uh, yeah, twenty twenty vision. Um, this is this has been amazing, Cheryl. I I gotta I gotta thank definitely thank you for taking your time out for uh, talking to us. Are you, are you saying Cheryl is Shirley? Cheryl, Shirley, Shirley, Shirley. I'm sorry, sorry. No. I was like, You're fine. People do it all the time. And I'm like, nope, surely. Yeah, everybody's going to rip me for that one. We just had a full podcast. And I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> where can, uh, where can um, uh, people find you? You have a Twitter, Facebook? Uh... I am on um, Instagram mostly. So at Cheryl's MD, S-H-E-R-L-Z-M-D. Um, you can hit me up there. And I would be more than happy to ask any questions within you know, within the limitations of um, I'm not your actual physician, so I'm right. not going to tell you to do anything crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't ask me if I should or should not have this surgery or something like that. That's, huh. you know, <laughs> uh, but as long as I, I can answer anything, you know, any um, general questions, I am more than happy to. Do you get a lot of uh, random questions like that uh, specific? Oh, yeah. I'm not surprised. Oh, yeah. I mean, and second opinions are always a good thing, but those I definitely would want to establish a formal relationship with a patient, have you come into my office, and I kind of give you a second opinion. Over social media, not so much, because um, 
I, I don't know the history, you know, I don't know a lot of information that I would need to, to make those kinds of, um, you know, make those kinds of recommendations, but something like, um, you know, hey, when should I expect this Bactrim to start working for this bacterial vaginosis I have or something like that? Definitely, I could, um, you know, I can answer that. Okay, so everybody out there, please don't harass her DMs with uh, all these all these <laughs> crazy questions, you know. So, yeah, that's that. <laughs> um, Jenny, you got anything else? Oh, I do have one question. Uh, ask away, babe. Where do you stand on getting your tubes tied? Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. I um, definitely stand with uh, patient autonomy for most things. So I am going to be, um, I, I, I want patients to feel like they have autonomy over their own bodies. Now, with that being said, I am going to make sure that I counsel you and make sure you understand up through and out the wazoo, you know, what this means for you. But if you do, um, I will do your tubal ligation. I've had patients come to me and say, I have gone through several doctors. They say that I can't have my tubes tied unless I have two kids. They say that my husband or my boyfriend or my partner needs to be here to sign off on it. Um, and that I don't agree with. I think that, um, again, you know, women have to have autonomy over their own bodies. Now, um, I do tell patients that um, the highest rate of regret for that occurs if you have it before you're the age of 30. So most women under 30, or well not most women, but a larger percent of women will regret it if they're less than 30 when they have their tubal. And that's irrespective of how much children they have. Um, but if you tell, if I if I counsel you and I tell you all the all these things, including the risk of regret. And you're, you're like, you know what, I understand everything you've explained, and this is what I want to do for my body, for my life, for my reproductive future. I'm going to tie your tubes. Is it more effective to get your tubes tied or a vasectomy? Or are we going with this? Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I've heard... Your eyes just got so big when she asked that question. It's been a, it's been a back and forth in our, uh, our household. So um, here's the deal with that. And I get a lot of questions about that too. So both are very effective forms of birth control. With the vasectomy, um, it is a less invasive procedure. So um, you have the procedure done, less downtime. Um, it's just less invasive. Um, with the tubal, you know, it requires um, a little bit more as far as um, incisions and things like that. So it's a little bit more invasive. If you're having a C-section for any reason, then I would say if you're if your guys are going, if you're deciding between one form of permanent contraception versus the other, and you're having a C-section, your abdomen is already open it probably does make sense to go ahead and do the tubal because your abdomen's already open. Uh -huh. If you have a vaginal delivery, though, you have to have a separate surgery to have the, um, the tubal uh, compared to a vasectomy that is um, n not much a, as much a surgery as it is a procedure. So, you know, that's something to consider. Um, also, the way we're doing tubals now, most people are... Um, removing the entire fallopian tube. So back in the day, we were burning a part of it or we were clipping a little part of it, but leaving some of the tube left behind. Nowadays, we're, um, most people are removing the fallopian tube or a large portion of it. And that does a couple of things. That decreases the woman's overall lifetime risk of ovarian cancer. Um, and um, there's less chances of ectopic pregnancy or pregnancy within the remnant of the tube that we left behind. So with that being said, if your tubes are like in little jars in my pathology lab, there's no way we could reconnect that. So this is like, that's it. As opposed to um, with a vasectomy, you can have a vasectomy reversal in the future if you desire that. I like to tell patients though, you, you wanna be sure that you don't want any more children when considering either one of these. This is to be considered as permanent birth control. Um, and it's just a matter of, Who's going to get the procedure? We'll flip a coin. <laughs> <laughs> that is science is amazing. Removing the whole tube. That is, uh, <laughs> that's something right there. Um, yeah. We used to like, I, I like to give this analogy. Imagine the tube is like, um, 
it's a bridge where the sperm and the egg meet. That's all it is. It's a bridge. So in the past, we were putting an obstacle or a blockage in that bridge. Um, we were either cutting out a portion of it so that the sperm and the egg couldn't meet or um, burning it, causing like a, a blockage there. But sometimes that sneaky sperm still finds the egg and um, you have a higher chance of having that pregnancy implant in the tube now because you've caused um, this damage to the tube that causes scar tissue. And if that occurs, you have an ectopic pregnancy. And you have less chances of that happening if the tube is, is just removed for permanent birth control. Hey, this poop's permanent. Probably part of the body. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we'll uh, without we'll keep talking about that one right there. She's not even thirty yet. I just I'm turning thirty two this uh this summer, so yeah, we'll uh we'll see what we'll see what life brings. Yeah, we'll we'll start with August. <laughs> <laughs> All right, right, that's uh anything else, Meg? You got anything else? Any no questions. Uh, this is like I said, this has been uh it's been fantastic. Thank you for your time once again. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. This was really fun. This was really, this was really cool. Yeah, 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 definitely. I'll uh make sure this is uh, up, share with the world, so uh, everybody can uh hear not just uh, also your powerful story you mentioned in the beginning, but you know just uh the education of uh women's health, especially on this uh Mother's Day weekend. What a time! Yeah. Yep. Like, yep. Perfect time for it. Yeah. It all, it all worked <laughs> itself out. We didn't even plan it that way. It just, it just did. So. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, like they say, never force the game. Let the game come to you. So that's all we did. Absolutely. Yeah. So well, uh, it was a pleasure, like actually seeing you guys and yes. interacting with you guys. I had a great time. Um, it was really dope. I haven't done many of these, but this this is cool. I enjoyed it. Hey, keep doing them. Yeah, yeah. I, I just might. I yeah. just might. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you, you're great at it. You're wonderful. And uh, people amazing. need to be educated because yes, yeah, especially with the the way the world is, <laughs> with as much education as possible. So. <laughs> All right. Well, um. We'll uh we'll be in contact and uh until uh until next time. Definitely gotta go get in contact with your brother too as well. Sounds great. Sounds great. Hey, you guys be- have a good night. Yeah. Hey, Thank you too. You, Shirley. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right, bye.